Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Tubbs, president of the California Fire Chiefs Association, uh, doing our episode nine of our podcast series. And today I'm real excited to welcome Chief Alex Hamilton from the Oxnard Fire Department here to talk about an issue I think that many of us uh, believe is extremely important. And we've invested a lot of time and energy and resources into, and that is uh, mental and behavioral health. And so, first of all, I'd like to well, welcome uh, Chief Hamilton to the podcast today, and, and thanks for joining us uh, to talk about this important issue. And But before we get started, maybe you share a little bit about yourself and your agency and how you got involved in this topic and ultimately this piece of legislation that we want to talk about, um, AB 662. Absolutely. Um, good morning, uh, Chris, or President Tubbs, I, I probably should say, on on a Cal Chiefs podcast, but um Thank you so much, and uh, I really appreciate um, being allowed to to speak on this topic. It's it's something that uh, for me has sort of become a labor of love over the last ten years, and, and so certainly something I um, I'm very passionate about. But a little bit about myself: I actually this is not an Oxnard accent. I actually grew up uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Um, moved here in uh, 2000. Uh, my wife uh, grew up in Los Angeles, and so we now live uh, in Ventura County. Um, so. I've been the uh, Oxnard Fire Chief for the last two years. We, uh, we're, we're a very young eight, eight stations, so eight engines, two ladder trucks, um, and a, a very young agency. We've, we've had a lot of turnover over the last 10 years, and so certainly we're working hard to, um, to ensure the behavioural health of our folks. And, and I, I've got to say that um, becoming the Fire Chief was something I was very apprehensive about um, when I was first uh, offered the role. I, I spent a about four years as assistant fire chief, and uh, taking this role on, it's it's actually been um, better than I ever could have hoped. It, it, it's uh, possibly the best position I've, I've enjoyed in the fire service so far. So um, it does also help that I have a fantastic boss in the city manager and uh, and a very supportive council. Um, that that obviously helps, but um, but I'm enjoying myself so far. Well, again, I'm I'm really glad you could join us today, and and uh, as we have talked about offline, I think. You know, this topic um, is timely uh, and it is important. And, and I don't look at it as a, an issue uh, in which we arrive. I think it's an ongoing journey as we continue to learn more about, you know, how we support the men and women that are out in the field serving our communities. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about the legislation, what it is and what the intended outcome is from that. What should we expect to see sort of down at the individual agency level? Yeah, it, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit of a backstory, um, and then I'll talk about the legislation. So, uh, myself and, and two of the peer team members that I work with um, from my agency, uh, we've been doing, been teaching um, suicide intervention and suicide awareness classes now for about eight years. Um, and the whole idea of um, of the model that we use is that it has a, a sort of a tiered response to suicide prevention, in the sense that. Uh, within our organisation, for example, everybody receives three hours of suicide awareness training. And, it, and it's pretty simple, um, sort of down and dirty training, but it's just how to recognise uh, potential warning signs, how to have a non-judgmental conversation, how to ask the question, which is an important part of it, and then what happens if somebody says yes, they are thinking about suicide. So, And then the second piece of, of this tiered response to suicide prevention is then having all our peer support team members having two days of suicide intervention training, which is obviously a much higher level of training, um, but it gives you a, a much greater confidence in, in helping somebody that's deep in some turmoil. Um, and so that's that we've sort of proved this concept out over the last few years, teaching this to agencies up and down the state and now increasingly across the country. Um, and one of the things that, that has been, um, uh, been really important about um, us doing this training is that it's firefighters teaching firefighters and that has been uh, uh, really a game changer in in people's acceptance of having this conversation I've, we've been to jurisdictions uh, where they previously had actually the, the exact same training that or the same curriculum that we teach but it was being taught by um, mental health professionals and clinicians who, whose hearts are absolutely in the right place and they want to do the right thing but it, this the information and the, the lessons being taught really need to come from firefighters for firefighters to accept them. That's something that, uh, that, that we've seen firsthand. So 
So now bringing that to AB 662, the legislation that we passed uh, and that the governor signed uh, earlier this year, is essentially trying to take that model and implementing it within the California Fire Service. So, so the goal would be that um, we would add the, the suicide awareness training, the three hours of training, into the State Firefighter 1 curriculum. And so we have a meeting scheduled, I believe, next week with the, uh, with the State Fire Master's Office to discuss that. Um, and then the other piece is uh, making that two days of intervention uh, training available to peer support team members up and down the state. Peer support team members, um, uh, critical incident stress management um, uh, team members, uh, even clinicians that work with firefighters or chaplains that work with firefighters, these are all folks that should come to these uh, intervention classes. So we're, we're really going to try and expand um, the availability of, of that intervention class in addition to the awareness training. So, so the hope would be that um, in the next couple of years, we'll have enough folks that are trained to be able to teach these classes, firefighters, and so that anyone that's following the state fire, firefighter curriculum, uh, their rookies will get it um, as, they, as they come on board into the fire service. And then uh, obviously, the, again, those peer support team members add that, that second layer of, of protection um, uh, for suicide. So, so Alex, it, one of the things that jumps out at me, you know, in, in what you've just shared is obviously your organization had been doing work in this area prior to the legislation. So what was, what was sort of the catalyst that, that got you interested? What, what put Oxnard in a place where it's like, Hey, this, this is something we want to engage in. You know, there was a really excellent article, of course, recently, you know, about in the Western city that talked a little bit about this, but tell us a little bit more about really what got you involved in this particular issue. Yeah. It's, it, you know, everyone's sort of got the, the, the story where it starts, I think. And, and so uh, for me, it actually, um, it, before, before I um, became so passionate about suicide, it, it was more about uh, behavioral health issues. And so I actually, uh, Many years ago, I ran a call. It was actually on Thanksgiving Day that we ran this call. Uh, so that obviously the anniversary is coming up. We're recording this just a few days before um, Thanksgiving, and um, it was it was a, uh, a six year old boy that was killed in um, uh, an auto versus pedestrian accident. Um, and so it, it it incredibly impactful on me. Um, at the time, we didn't really have anything in the way of support. Um, we had sort of a um, a poorly accepted CISM program that, that was only used intermittently and an EAP program that nobody trusted. And I, um, my response at the time was actually quite myopic. I, I just sort of like went and got myself some help to try and deal with uh, some of the nightmares and things that I was experiencing and, and ultimately actually thought I'd, I'd sort of work my way through things and discovered later that I, I, I still needed more work on, on that subject. But what, what really... Uh, struck me was um, I was an engineer at the time. My firefighter on that day came to me about six months after that incident and he said, I'm just not coping with life anymore and I don't know what to do. And that was kind of my oh no moment um, uh, because I, I, I didn't really think about, um, you know, how this, how this would even impact anyone else on the crew, much less, you know, so that, that's where it all started. And, and when, when my firefighter came to me and says, I don't know what to do, we literally didn't have anything. Um, like the only option was to call uh, the 1-800 number on the back of his medical card, medical insurance card. That is not a good option. And so, so that was when uh, I, I realised that we needed to do something. And, and so uh, I was secretary treasurer of um, the Oxnard Firefighters uh, Association and IFF 1684. And so using um, uh, working with the IFF, we actually then started down this road of building a peer support program and really creating options um, for assistance for our folks. Now, while this was going on, we actually had an individual within our agency. We're having a bunch of issues within our agency, but one in particular was um, uh, one of our members uh, attempted suicide, um, but was reaching out to us, um, reaching out to some of our folks via text message. And so it ultimately ended up um, that without any training, without anything, we were able to uh, do a successful intervention via text message for this individual. And so that was when I realised as a part of building this program, we really needed a, a suicide prevention component of our behavioural health program. 
And so that's sort of, that's the rabbit hole that I started going down. And the curriculum that we use, that we've been using is from an outfit called Living Works. We originally were uh, recommended that curriculum from uh, FDNY. I worked uh, closely with Frank Lido uh, over the years, who um, uh, recently retired captain for FDNY that, that also runs their um, behavioral health program out in New York. So do you find, um, based on, you, you know, what you've learned and experiences that a lot of times there are uh, what I would call warning signs or maybe people reaching out. And if we've not been sensitized to that or we don't know what to look for, we can miss those signs. And I would imagine that in part, this is some of what the legislation, the training is trying to address. Right. So that we we see an issue long before, as we all know. Um, you know, a lot of times people who, um, are considering suicide, it's, um, there's opportunities to intervene if we're sensitive to those signs. Is that what, what you guys have found and what sort of what part of the intent of this is? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's twofold, but, but you're, you're absolutely right. There, there are, are often some kind of warning signs. Um, although it's, it, um, for those who, who have lost loved ones or friends to suicide, um, I'll, I want to also acknowledge that um, there's not always signs and and they're not um, ever easy to spot. Actually, I shouldn't say ever. They're, they're, they're often very difficult to spot, even though that somebody that's at risk of suicide or thinking about suicide might well be thinking that they're, they're stating their intentions quite clearly mm-hmm. with the turmoil and everything going on, um, that, that it doesn't come out clearly. The second piece, though, and, and um, what's also very important when we talk about this topic it is to actually talk about this topic, meaning that uh, most people are incredibly uncomfortable, which makes sense, but incredibly uncomfortable having a conversation around suicide. And even when we teach these classes and we, we, we do role plays where you practice asking someone, are you thinking about suicide? People have a really hard time saying the word suicide sometimes, you know, because we, we ask them to imagine asking the loved one about suicide. That's really difficult. Mm. And so, so part of the, the, the other piece of this is trying to give people a, a level of comfort in having a conversation. It, it will be an anxiety provoking conversation without a doubt, but um, suicide grows in isolation and darkness. And as much as possible, if we can have these conversations, um, we, I think we can, we can do a lot um, to, to uh, grab a hold of these people that, that are in, in really deep darkness and turmoil. Um, so, and, and I think I, I also want to add, though, that I think this is just um, the beginning of, of there, there is just a, a, a huge array of things that I think we can do in this um, suicide prevention field. And so this training, I think, is, is a really great, starting point and a really great foundation to set and then i think there's other things that we can add to this as we go but i think particularly for the fire service and our our culture is very much sort of type a and you know we we help people we don't ask for help that that kind of mentality Mm -hmm. um is where we we need to be able to encourage our folks to have these have these conversations so so what are you seeing in the statistics at least as far as you know, how the fire service compares to the general population. And I th- I'll ask that sort of, I guess, in two contexts is I would say that today we have much more awareness and sensitivity around behavioral and mental health. When I started back in 78, uh, it was, you know, you kept stuff in that backpack, right? You just, you, you tucked it away. You might talk about things when you went on you know, when you were on calls with your friends, your buddies, you talk about it in the rig on the way back. But what what has the data shown? So, uh, unfortunately, this is this is where we have a real issue because the the data is not great when it, particularly when it comes to firefighter suicides. So, suicide um, over the general population, we have we have better um, better data on. It is starting to get better. What we have seen over the general population, what we can safely say is that the rate of suicide has grown by more than 30% in the last 10 years. Um, and anecdotally and arguably, it's, it's grown um, uh, by an even greater extent uh, in the fire service. Um, and so there are, there are stats out there about, you know, more firefighters um, 
uh, dying by their own hand and, and in the line of duty, and 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 that's sort of been a a standard since I think 2014 or 2015. Um, but I, I I I hesitate a little bit um, on some of those stats just because I I while I absolutely believe that uh, suicide is is a large and growing problem for the fire service. It's it's hard to quantify with the data that we currently have, and also I want I want people to understand that that um, that there are really good treatment options out there, and so rather than sort of focusing on um, these sometimes doom and gloom statistics, I like I, I really want to come from a position of hope, and there there is reasons to be hopeful out there, and so and and hopefully from the data we will get uh, and learn more. Um, about how we can we can better better help folks at, at risk of suicide, uh, but I, I just don't think the data's there yet. Yeah, and I and I appreciate that. I think that's sort of been some of my own conclusions too. In in looking at the data, is that um, one, you know, we weren't really focusing on this issue per se. Let's say thirty, forty years ago, um, I, I'm not aware of data in any shape or form that that sort of includes suicide ideation how does that factor in and i think at the end of the day while i think that information is important you know clearly the the important issue is recognizing the problem and addressing the problem but what what do you think has maybe changed over the years that might be connected to the increase in suicide in in our industry what have you is there anything that sort of you've come across in your um, education or study or interaction that you think is different? And, and is there areas of opportunity for us as leaders to also address some of those areas if it's differently than what we're doing in, you know, as an adjunct or addition or supplement or enhancement, whatever that might be? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think to some extent um, it, it's, the the job has changed over the last 15 20 years or maybe it's just it's a constant evolution i think but but the sort of the um you know that this idea that we're we're an all-risk fire department and uh or a fire service and so we we take on uh more and more things um in in part because there's no one else to do these things and i think um that's uh, that has had an impact. I think the the threat of violence. Um, you know, we 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 I think we're viewed a little bit differently uh, than we than we used to be to some extent. And I think those things ha- have really had an impact on um, how firefighters view themselves and how they viewed with how they see themselves viewed by 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 the world around them. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then for for a very long time, um, and and this is changing rapidly thankfully is um where you would go for help there just wasn't good options out there Mm -hmm. and so so really this understanding that we we need um uh, a certain level of cultural competence when when we when we reach out for help either either through clinicians or having peer support teams and those kinds of things um uh, are really what's needed and 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 we just didn't have that for the longest time so i think those things are now are starting to fall into place more and more. There's a lot more being invested. A lot of organizations are doing some really good work that I think will um, will really start stemming the tide. So, so that's an interesting point that you raise, and I think many of us can um, relate to, which is sort of prior to some of the resources we're seeing today, many agencies had, you know, EAP programs or your existing medical plans, which certainly was not um uh, the right thing for this issue so if, if if we go back to 2012 which is i believe when uh oxnard sort of began this behavioral health in- initiative with that as a backdrop when you began to sort of introduce this new um mindset and training how was it received was there skepticism was there this oh my god this is just another eap what did you learn from that and and what would you share with other fire chiefs as they're navigating you know the new uh programs and services that are available uh considering they're probably dealing with a similar environment yeah absolutely and and um, i think that's a really great question and so um for us, so as I mentioned uh, earlier, I was uh, I was secretary treasurer of um, of the local um, when we started down this road, and and 
we had a lot of fortuitous timing in, in sort of setting this up, but also I think um, at the time the, the, the command group of the, of the department and the chief officers sort of didn't know where to go with it and were kind of like, um, if you guys have got an answer, let, let's try that kind of thing. And so um, and then I think um, the vast majority of our folks uh, out on the floor recognised that they needed something. We had, we had a number of um, sort of really seasoned folks, 25-plus year veterans that were well-respected within the agency that, that ultimately had some behavioural health issues that they needed to get treatment for. And this was all happening around the same time. And so we actually, um, the, the IFF was just starting to build what is now their, their two-day peer support um, team training class. And so they actually sort of used us as guinea pigs and, and did some beta testing. And it was interesting when we, when we, from the first day that we started providing this training to our, to our peer support team, um, mm-hmm. people were asking what it was about and asking for resources and asking for help. Almost immediately, um, there, there was acceptance of what was going on. Um, the other thing, though, is we, we spent a lot of time sort of trying to grab everyone else's best practices. And so spoke to people from all over the country. That's where, I, as I mentioned, I got connected with Frank Alito from FDNY. But I remember speaking to a chief out of um, Hartford, Connecticut, I believe, who, who established a program. And, and one of their, I want to say it was Hartford, one of the things that they did when choosing their peer support team was um, doing uh, essentially a, an anonymous, anonymous uh, poll or vote. And so we, that's how we picked our, our, our peer support team was basically asked a, um, essentially similar questions a few different ways about who would you reach out to if you're having a crisis at home? Who would you reach out to if you're having a crisis at work? And, and similar questions like that. And, and we basically went to, you know, the top 10% of those, the names that we got from that poll. So congratulations, you won a popularity contest and you're going to become part of our peer support team. <laughs> um, and, and at the time, no one really knew what that meant. Um, and we, it's, so to a large extent, I feel like we, we sort of got a little lucky in the sense that the vast majority of, of our folks really recognised they needed something. We actually got some funding from the Assistance to Firefighter Grant Program to help implement it. So didn't have sort of pressure of, of the administration worrying about um, the dollars and cents. And and so so a lot of these different things fell into line. We um, that, that first sort of iteration of our peer support team, uh, we went through a whole year of training um, and did way too much training, but I really wanted to make sure that our folks, uh, our peer support team members felt comfortable t- doing this work. And so that's where we spent, spent a lot of time in training, but ultimately, thankfully we, we, um, we did get lucky there. And then, and once we, once we started building it, then we've just sort of been able to add little pieces along the way. And so one thing we didn't have for quite some time was, was a clinician, an on-call clinician. Um, and so we, whenever we had to make a referral um, to get, get help from somebody, um, it, it was always a bit of a magical mystery to it. We didn't really have a, a clean way of doing things, even though we had lots of different options for people to get support. So bringing a clinician on board, um, was a huge step forward for us. And, and so, and the, our clinician, uh, his name is Dr. Ryan Sharma. Um, he, uh, he's been a game changer for us. And, and we, we've set things up so that he, he just charges an hourly rate as people reach out to him. And, and we figured out anywhere now, anywhere between 10 and 12% of, of the fire department membership is seeing him at any given time. Wow. Um, and, and spend, spend a little bit of time with him and, and, then, and then funnel back out. One of the things that I do too is I'll actually send his invoice to our peer support team so they can see that, that they have no concerns about confidentiality. Um, they can see what the invoice, how the invoice reads. I'll never know who's getting treatment. And, and so that, that's been one of, the, one of the big pieces for us. So um, I, I would say to getting back to your original question though is how to implement these things. I think it's it, it really important to get uh, labour and management on on the same sheet of music um, because that I think that's the only way you're going to get the acceptance um, really of, of of the membership and um, and and I I do, hopefully I, I don't think that would be too hard because I think we'd both be coming both from a from a, a chief officer standpoint and a labour labour group standpoint we're both coming from the same place if 
wanting to keep our folks safe and, and healthy throughout their careers. So with this legislation you mentioned earlier about how uh, it'll be integrated into um, recruit training, um, but I've got to imagine, especially since you guys have been in this arena for a while, behavioral and mental health, um, what are some of the maybe other programs or services or um, things that you've come upon along the way that you've found um, had value that you've sort of implemented. I'll give you an example. Uh, so in, in our agency, uh, we have found um, treatment beds uh, oftentimes uh, come and go very, very quickly. And one of the things that our agency did was we set up a fund, our board supported, and we set aside funds that would allow us to immediately pay for that person to get in there. And then there is a reimbursement process that's pre-established between labor and management in the back end of that. But are there things that you guys have sort of discovered that um, have been positive, maybe additions or positive enhancements or more? Because we we know that mental and behavioral health is 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 a very large feel right it's it 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 can involve alcohol and drug abuse and you know other types of issues and how people manifest whatever things that they're struggling with internally so it's not a one size fits all uh are there things that you've learned kind of along the way that you you think are are valuable for us to know about that that maybe help us steer us in in a in the right direction as our programs mature yeah you know what i think i what you're talking about uh, sound, sounds phenomenal that you have uh, have that reimbursement mechanism. I, I will say that um, you know with PTSD becoming a presumption, a workers' comp presumption uh, in the last few years uh, is a fantastic step forward. Um, but but it uh, workers' comp sort of only does okay when it comes to uh, sort of cancer and, and physical injuries and things like that. Um, un- unfortunately, the system doesn't work tremendously well when it comes to PTSD um, it, because in my experience oftentimes by by the time somebody is is in a position where they they put their hand up and say I really need help um, they don't have time to wait 90 days or 75 days right. or whatever it is for, for the claim to go through and so so that that's that's one area that that I think there's definitely more work to do um, but I, I think that the single biggest thing that I could say, and because I know there's different jurisdictions are going to have different levels of funding and, and those kinds of things, is, is trying to build lots of connections. And there, there are generally really good connections in every community, in almost every community, there are good connections to make. And then it's, it's, it's a matter of sort of strengthening those connections with, um, uh, with, with the clinicians in the area, um, potentially there, there, there's often like different therapies um, that you can do, but there's also a ton of free trainings and, and different things that, that are available. NFFF has some fantastic um, online programs around stress first aid and things like that. Obviously the, the healing our own um, .org, uh, behavioral health website um, has some, some phenomenal resources on it. So there are, there are a whole range of different, uh, areas where where I think that there's there's more that we can do, um, and and um, options for us to 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 get help where where you don't need uh, tons of money, you don't need tons of funding, you do need um, commitment and and the will to make it happen. That the, the one big struggle I think we all have is there is so much going on all the time. It is so hard to dedicate. Uh, and really focus in on on any given thing, and and so I I would say that that is one of our, our greatest challenges is dedicating the time um, to to actually ex- getting these programs set up, expanding on these programs, and and really building them from the ground up. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that that part, and as one of the um, talking points I had in my notes, because uh, I'm sure, you know, it's one of the first things that comes to our mind, of course, is cost, right? What What's available? How am I going to pay for if I'm a smaller agency or even a volunteer agency in the state that has very limited funds, but, you know, the need 
exists in a volunteer organization just as it, it does in a full-time agency, yep. you know, how, how do folks sort of step forward and find these solutions? So you, you mentioned, you know, a couple of organizations um, that are a great starting point. Have you found, you know, uh, other organizations or websites that you would connect folks to, um, especially if they're struggling sort of financially? Yeah, um, I, I would say so. Um, those those two organizations that I mentioned, but there's also the, the IFF um, has a bunch of resources just on their website. Um, they do have a, a, a free online behavioral health. Uh, it's a two-hour online behavioral health program that you can go through. You do not have to be an IFF member to go through that training. They do have a, a section where non-members can actually go through that as well. So that there, there are things like that. Um, I, I know uh, we've used uh, Firestrong, which is, was started originally um, out of Arizona. Um, that's relatively cheap, but that there is there is a cost there. But it does um, that they, they do provide a, a, a ton of different resources. So, and I think w- one of the biggest things that that I think from a labour and management standpoint that we really need to do is have these conversations and and as chief officers. As heads of the union uh, movement, if if there is a if there is a local involved, to say that um, we need to talk about this and we need to be okay um, having these conversations because they're not going to be easy conversations. Um, so and and really, rather than um, you know we 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 do safety stand downs um, a little bit. I think I think I think the point can be missed on a stand down if we don't provide the tools. Um, for folks to have these conversations during stand downs. And I think sometimes that gets missed with these, um, when, when we do these things. So really providing great tools. How do you initiate these conversations around the kitchen table? Because I think we, we, we all carry some amount of, of hurt and, and most of us, most of us can deal with it quite well, but there's always those calls that will get stuck or those issues that will get stuck. And then there's all those, all the things that, that happen in our personal lives. That happens to everyone. That sort of exacerbates some of the things that that happen to us on duty as well. So, um, but uh, what where I see this our, our next step in terms of suicide prevention, I think if uh, once we get this implemented and we start getting this training out, is then looking at uh, perhaps some harm reduction strategies and and how we can implement those. And and again, those are those are things that that are, are low cost things to implement as well. Um, you know, so. So if somebody's um, put their hand up and said they're, they're having thoughts of suicide or suicide ideations, securing uh, firearms if they have firearms in the house, but but what does that look like? Do you do you have the local police department um, take custody of them, which which they will, um, or um, uh, sometimes gun shops and gun ranges will um, will hold firearms for people. Um, so there, there, there's things like that that we that we can talk about. Um, you know, I. I uh, gave a presentation at our Cal Chiefs conference um, earlier this year. And one of the things that, you know, in, in sort of researching doing that presentation is um, what we really need to look at doing is sort of reducing the, the lethality of suicide uh, attempts, you know, and, and unfortunately uh, firearms are uh, uh, obviously very prevalent in this country and, and one, of the, one of the most commonly used um, means of, of suicide. So, so it's wherever we can we can try and uh, reduce, obviously reduce the number of suicide attempts, but also reducing the lethality of of those attempts. Um, it, it's sort of the next step, I guess, in, in this evolution of, of of trying to keep our folks safe. As you were, you know, chatting sort of the beginning of this about the importance of having the conversation, and and again earlier we talked about your your own organization and, and sort of getting, you know, what my words, getting over that hump, right. Being able to get to a place of comfort to talk about it. You also alluded earlier to um, how not only have you been doing this, you know, in your agency, state of California, but actually across the nation. So if I understand you correctly, you know, you, you and members of your organization have really been helping other agencies sort of get their, um, understanding, perhaps even programs, you know, s- set up, which I think is remarkable, right? It's one of the things I love about the fire service is we, we plagiarize the heck out of things. We give stuff away because, you know, it's, it's what drives us that sense of higher calling. But 
I'm curious in doing that, what, what was the experience like? Uh, you, you know, as we know, agencies, we can be a little bit tribal. Uh, you know, yes, we're all part of a family, but we have subfamilies and there sometimes those barriers are difficult to get through. What, what was your guys' experience like with that? You know, it, it's actually, it, it's been interesting. We, we haven't had too much, uh, resist, resistance, I guess. Um, and, and it, it sort of, it, it's really dependent on the, um, the agency in, in the sense of where the request was coming from. So we recently spent time, um, in Columbus, Georgia, and that was a request, um, and buddies with Fire Chief out there. And so he asked us to come out. He actually put a really awesome collaboration together. It was fire, EMS, police and corrections. Wow. That all came through the training together. And, and the whole thing was, was sponsored by, uh, the local hospital system, <clears throat> believe it or not. So, uh, versus we went um, uh, a number of years ago now, we're out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had originally uh, deployed out there on behalf of the IFF um, uh, to provide some peer support after they'd had a, a, an active duty suicide. And so we went out there and I, I led a team out there and we, we, we gave them some, um, some support and some tools um, for, that, for that initial period right after that, uh, that member's suicide. And then ultimately, just through that connection, we, we then went back out there uh, to help out. So that, that was more coming from the, from the labor side and, and certainly, but, but in both, uh, both those, um, examples, there, there, there was very little resistance. People were, were very much open to it. And I think that's, again, speaks to having, and that's what the legislation, uh, really focused on is peer to peer training. Um, it is sometimes, um, it feels a little bit unusual sometimes when we, when we, uh, provide this training to police, uh, law enforcement and, and corrections as we did in Columbus because they're, because um, I not appear, obviously. So it's, it, it is a little bit, it feels a little bit different, whereas I feel very comfortable having these conversations um, uh, with firefighters. And, and Chris, one thing I actually wanted to go back to um, when you talked about signs and symptoms earlier in, in the podcast and, and how sometimes it's difficult to recognise so that's one part of the training. I actually wanted to give a, an example, if I could. Please. Um, because it, 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 it just shows how nuanced it can be. I guess. <laughs> so um, we had a uh, fire chief uh, for Fillmore Fire Department, which is uh, just inland from us here in Oxnard, um, uh, Chief uh, Rigo Landeros. Um, he suicided. Um, it'll be six years uh, in January uh, that he suicided. Uh, I actually spoke to him two days before his suicide and and I, I play that conversation in my head a lot, trying to figure out if, if I missed something. And and I I honestly couldn't tell you for sure whether or not I missed something, whether he 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 let me in on on his thoughts. It was clear that he'd been thinking about in, in hindsight, it was clear that he'd been thinking about this for quite some time. Um, but one of the things that happened on the day he suicided, he ran into his friend um, in the street. They'd known each other. 50 plus years. Um, his friend actually told the story at, at his funeral. And so this is, this is public information, but he, um, anyway, they ran into each other on the street. They had a small talk conversation, you know, busy this, stress that. Um, and then they, they were just going the separate ways. It was a very short interaction, but as they, as they turned to leave, Rigo said to his friend, I love you, brother. And the guy said it made the hair on the back of his neck stand up because in 50 plus years of friendship, Rigo had never said anything like that. And he thought, oh, that's odd. But anyway, just sort of went about his day. Well, that, that was likely an invitation or, you know, a, 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 an insight into his, into his mind. Um, uh, and w- would I have picked up on that, you know, having all the training that I've had? I, I honestly couldn't say for sure, you know, and that's, that's where it's the, 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 the warning signs are sometimes really hard to spot. But then separately, um, I was uh, actually – uh, in Baltimore, um, uh, doing grant uh, peer reviews for for FEMA, and I, I we were out one night, and I ended up doing an intervention on a, on a gentleman in his twenties because his warning sign was incredibly clear to me, and and so we got talking. Ultimately, I'd already had a couple of beers. I wasn't in, in you know really did, didn't need to be doing an intervention at that point, but ultimately sat with him and and had talked with him until we could get um, get a hold of his father. Was actually the one that came down and and um, sort of took over care for him. But it, it, it's sometimes incredibly difficult to spot those warning signs. And it's, it's something I just wanted to come back to because I feel like um, 
I, I know mm-hmm. many of us have lost friends and loved ones, as I mentioned, to, to suicide, and and we're not always going to we're not always going to catch those warning signs. And so, to, um, I I don't ever want people to, to sort of beat themselves up that they, somehow they did something wrong or didn't you know didn't do or say the right thing because that that is just not the case. Well, and, and you touch on a piece I know we've not we've not talked about and is probably worth a conversation on another episode, but that is is you know what is the damage that's left in the wake of a suicide? As we know, um, you know when people get to that point in life, they truly feel is that this is the only option, and that it would be easier for everyone if they left. And and the opposite of that is true. And I think you know in part that's that's part of the tragedy is that disconnect. That that individual just does not understand the value that they have to other people's lives. And I certainly am, am reminded of that like everyone else. You know, I've had my fair share of those experiences and I'm just struck about how, you know, each day is not a guarantee. It's, you know, I don't mean that flippantly. It really is not. Um, and how we have to take, um, advantage of that in the sense of don't treat each day like you got another one and another one and another one. Um, they, they, we need to let the people around us know how much they matter. That's not a guarantee. I understand that. But, um, I think, you know, when, when I think about, you know, the folks that I've known that have committed suicide, that, um, that sense of guilt that, you know, we have as we begin to reflect on, boy, could have I done this? What did I miss? Um, you know, at least if you know that you have, um, you know, said and done things that you wanted to say, you didn't hold back and not, not that it alleviates the guilt. I don't think it does, but I think I would rather have said something than not, not said at all. Boy, I really wish I told that individual what they meant to me. Um, but yeah. really, really powerful stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think, uh, Christy, your point, um, uh, right there is that, um, you know, when it comes to sort of psychology of suicide and, and, and even that's sort of hard to tease out, um, because we don't get to the people that ulti- ultimately, um, completed a suicide. So, so we, we, we only get to speak to survivors on some point, but, um, often they, they, they have, uh, uh, they don't feel like they belong. They feel disconnected. They often uh, not only disconnected from those around them, but disconnected from from themselves to some extent. Mm. Um, and and so so when when they perceive themselves as a burden, um, and so much of a burden that, that that they think it's better that they they're not here is um, that that's really difficult stuff. And so and and that's where um, it, you know to some extent it. it, it it's a flawed way of thinking, but but ultimately, when somebody gets into that level of turmoil, that that's sort of where they can end up. Yeah. Um, and and the other thing too that I I think is important um, when we talk about this conversation for for um, chief officers or, or those folks that are listening is that there is a there's a whole range of things that we can also implement in terms of postvention, and so preparing for for that. Um, for if we're ever happening in your own organization, and so there, there's certainly there's policies, um, there are resources out there for postvention um, things. VA has some really great free resources about how to speak to children um, who have maybe lost uh, a parent to suicide. Mm-hmm. A whole range of different things like that 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 again can be implemented to to help, like you said, for those those folks left behind. I think. Somewhere the average suicide, um, I think, uh, impacts something like 140 people. I can't remember the stat exactly, but it's, it is a big number. And so it, it absolutely leaves a trail of destruction behind. And that's as much as possible where we can support those folks left behind. I think um, that, that there are things that we can do to prepare for that. Um, the IFF actually has some, some good things on their website, some sort of handouts about how to talk. Um, and how to talk about, uh, you know, if you've lost a, a member to suicide, um, and, and how to support the family and the friends around them. So, um, is there, are there any things that, that maybe I've not raised in my questions today in our discussion? Um, I know we're sort of closing in on our hour here. Uh, I want to make sure that I've not left, you know, anything off that's important, certainly from your perspective to talk about. I think as we, as we have discussed certainly here and before the show, there's an incredibly important issue to discuss. Is there something else that, that, that maybe we should be aware of or some things that you would like to leave us with? 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I appreciate that, Chris. And, and I know I've sort of gone, probably gone down a couple of rabbit holes today, but I think some, some really important takeaways is um, it, how to ask the question. If for whatever reason, if you have that spidey sense, the hair on the back of your neck standing up or, or anything that you think may be connected with suicide, ask the question. And it's okay. It's going to be anxiety provoking, but you have to ask it in a really clear, clear sense. And so what I mean by that is you need to say, are you thinking about suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? Okay. So if we were to say something like, you're not going to, you're not thinking about hurting yourself, are you? Um, somebody that's at risk of suicide could genuinely answer that question with a no, because they're not thinking about hurting themselves. They're thinking about ending their pain. And so that's it, it. And so they will, they, they can say no and be honest with that. And so, uh, um, that's one thing. The other thing too is not, not to say things like, you're not thinking about doing anything stupid, are you? Cause that then puts a, a value judgment on, on where this person might be. And so there's, um, that, that, that's a really big key takeaway. And, and if you ask the question and they say yes, it's okay. Like, you know, it, it's going to be difficult, but it's okay. If they're talking to you, mm. you're, you're in a much better position. As you mentioned, you know, you, you, can, you can actually articulate to this person um, how important they are, but also starting to understand how they got to this position. So, and there, there are resources out there. One of the, one of the best ones that um, uh, if you don't have um, resources in place is the suicide prevention hotline. So it's just changed to that three-digit 988 used to be a 1-800 number, and the 1-800 number will still work, mm-hmm. but now 988. Um, since they've implemented that um, that three-digit phone number, calls to the suicide prevention hotline have gone up 45%, uh, which is fantastic, right? So that, that there is, there is a, um, a, a really good piece. The other thing um, um, I, I think I want, want people to understand that um, some of the misconceptions around talking about suicide. So one of the big ones we, we see a lot in our classes is people think that, you know, if you, um, if you ask somebody about suicide, you'll give them the idea for suicide. And that's just, that's just not the case. It is mm-hmm. it's simply not true. And, and um, the, 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 only, the only way I can really try and explain it so people would understand that is that if I asked you to give me your next paycheck, you would tell me to pound sand unless you were already thinking about giving me your next paycheck. Okay, and so so asking about suicide is not going to give somebody that idea at yeah. all, and and so that that's and then I think from a, from a chief officer's perspective, uh, a really important thing to understand is that um, sometimes people don't want to start sort of doing suicide prevention training or don't want to implement some of these things until they have all the pieces uh, in place, um, and and I would just say start somewhere, you know, start anywhere, and and just. Just putting the nine eight eight number up on the board at the fire station, for example, like um, there 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 is a, a a ton of like small things we can do just to get the process started, and then just keep building incrementally, adding adding to whatever you have over time. Some things might work work out well better than than others, and and um, uh, folks that are listening to this, they'll know their own culture and they'll have a pretty good idea, a pretty good sense of what might work and what what might not work, but there are um, a, a bunch of, a bunch of things that, like that, that I think we can do. So, so yeah, they're, they're sort of the, some of the takeaways that I wanted to leave before we end off on this um, conversation. But um, by, um, I, I don't know if this is sort of necessarily a closing remark, but I, I do want to say um, that the Caltech organization has, has uh, been a, been a really fantastic leader in this, in this arena. And I, and I think there's still more that we can do, but I know, your predecessor, uh, President Geich, um, immediately threw support behind this um, this legislation uh, when I brought the idea forward at the beginning of the year, and and, and certainly the the Caltech organisation did a lot to get this across the line. So I can't thank thank you enough for the, for the support in, in moving this forward. Well, Alex, we you know I think that I mean this is the kind of thing that um, we as leaders you know we have a responsibility to do right when we see an issue. 
um, that really requires our attention is to jump on board and to support one another. And I, I know I certainly could, you know, speak for uh, Chief Geik on this. I think we're honored to be uh, a part of it and to help support, you know, a great um, initiative that has turned into this piece of legislation, as you said, is only really the first step. I look forward to, you know, other work we can do perhaps around worker comp reform or harm reduction strategies, as you talked about. And of course, um, you know, I know Cal Chiefs will be there again in full support of that. Our people are truly the most important part um, of our organizations and, and ensuring that we can deliver really good services to our community. And, you know, it's not just something chiefs say. I think most chiefs, you know, they walk that talk every single day and it's people like you that demonstrate that. So, you know, I really appreciate you um, not only in spearheading this legislation and the work you're doing in this lane, but, you know, being willing to come on today and talk about it and be candid about it and, and share your experiences and, you know, things that you're still learning about it. I think that helps all of us increase our own awareness uh, around this topic. And um, I really look forward to having you back, maybe, you know, talking about where we are in the next uh, stage of the evolution of this um, and uh, look forward to hearing, you know, what's coming next. So thank you so much for being here today. And, and uh, uh, I look forward to seeing what we get to talk about next. Uh, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. And, and uh, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll leave everyone with um, is, is uh, there's a statistic out there that says that 5% uh, at any given time, five percent of the population is thinking about suicide. Um, wow. If there are people on this uh, listening to this podcast that are perhaps thinking about suicide, um, please understand that you are important, and I, I sincerely hope that you're visible to those around you, and there are resources for you. So I just want to leave that because I, I know there's people out there that are hurting, um, but there are resources and and there's help available to you. So then. Um, and with that, uh, Chris, thank you again. I look forward to helping out in any way I can in this field. Well, it's a great way to end it, Alex. And again, appreciate your time today. Um, we'll look forward to talking about this some more in the future. Thank you.